Good morning, Whitneyville Bible Church. Good morning. Will you please stand and worship with us this morning? In heavenly armor we'll enter the land. The battle belongs to the Lord. No weapon that's fashioned against us will stand. Battle belongs to the Lord, and we sing glory, honor, power, and strength to the Lord. We sing glory, honor, power, and strength to the Lord. When the power of darkness comes in like a flood, the battle belongs to the Lord. Raised up a standard, the power of his blood. The battle belongs to the Lord. wasn't another Chinese spy balloon, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, we'd like to uh, welcome those visiting. If you are here, please fill out a card. They're in the seat in front of you. Put in the collection plate, or there's a box back there. Um, we also have a bag for new people. Get one of these from the kiosk. Women's ministry event. We should have a lady up here doing that. <laughs> Ladies, you are invited to a night out with food and fellowship, Friday, March 10th, 6 p.m., Tokyo Buffet Grill in Wyoming. Dinner costs 18 bucks. Please sign up. If you need a ride, there will be a pool if you need a ride. Now we're gonna start cooking. More lady stuff. <laughs> if you want, 
Anyone wants to submit a recipe, we can uh, put that in the new Whitneyville cookbook. Please submit it by March 12th. V Vacation Bible School, call it VBS. June 19th through the 23rd, we need volunteers. You know who you are. <laughs> and um, see Deb with any questions. Next week, remember, will be Mission Sunday. We have the two offerings. We have a men's prayer fellowship next Saturday for the 4th at 6 a.m. If you guys can get out of bed, I got a problem with that. <laughs> I think we have a video. Yes. It's, it's day, day one. one. It's, it's day, day one. one. Okay, we got this. We got this. We got to go over yeah. our plan real quick. Okay. 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 So What's our plan? I, I, I've got music. Okay. Um, I'm, I've got games. I got registration. Uh, registration. Uh, assembly time? No, no. I don't have no. assembly time. I can't do assembly and registration. Okay. So the kids can just sit by themselves. Right. They might climb over a few chairs and yeah. break up, but that's okay. Oh, the deacons oh, won't okay. care. Yeah, yeah that's the deacons won't care. Yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah. Okay. 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 Okay, good. I grabbed some crafts okay. here. Okay. I think I have to do crafts. Well, Amy's got crafts. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, she's by herself, but that's okay. She oh, can handle yeah. 50 kids or so. Oh, yeah. They might eat some glue. Yeah. That's okay. That's fine. That's okay. okay. That's okay. Oh. Glue's good for them. Yeah, no, yeah. that's good for Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. I, well, I've, I've got groups one yeah. and uh, three. Yeah. You've got two and four. Two and four. Okay. Yep, I got when, two and four. When I got my kids in teaching time, the other group, right. I'll just have. Um, just, in, just sit them in the hallway. Okay, in the hallway. Then, okay. And throw some bags of pretzels at them. Okay, good. And they'll then, be, they'll and be then fine. Throw some balls. And, and then, they can, yeah. that, that could be their game time. Then it'll be game. Okay, great. Okay. Good. Okay. We're ready. We're ready. Right? Right? No. We can't. Kind of, we can't juggle all this. No, we cannot. We cannot. So, Whitneyville Bible Church, we, we need, need you. you. We need help with anything at VBS. Uh, we need help with guides. We need teachers. We need... Craft helpers. Games, registration. Registration. Assembly. And I know that's a lot of time, but if you don't have a whole couple hours to help, if you have 30 minutes, we need people to help, honestly, just count the kids that are here uh, and count offering. Uh, the kids bring offering every night. We need help just counting money. Yep. You can uh -huh. sit in the office. You don't have to be around the kids. Count money for about 30 minutes and leave. Welcomers. We need somebody to welcome our community into Whitneyville Bible Church. Mm -hmm. So we really need your help. This year's theme is Keepers of the Kingdom, and it's all about defending God's truth. And if you know Connor and I, we have a passion for these kids and to reach them and teach them how to defend God's truth. So after service today, we are going to have a table out there and you can sign up for whatever area you want and we're really asking that we have a lot of help this year because I think this year is going to be a big year for VBS. All right. We'll All right. see you out there. They are actually much more organized than what that appears to be. <laughs> I think you just got to look at their inside while they have their calm exterior working hard. Our verse, scripture verse for today is from 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that 
by recalling them you may fight the good fight having faith and good conscience mm -hmm. which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith <clears throat> let's go to the Lord in prayer our Lord and Heavenly Father Almighty God Jesus we humbly come before you to praise you and honor you for who you are we must ask forgiveness for our many failures. Our spirit is willing, but our body sometimes is weak. We pray for a positive testimony in this community. Let us be known for compassion, love, grace, with no criticism and no hypocrisy. We pray that each one here will be ministered to effectively and loved abundantly. We ask that you guide our men as they discover what it means to be followers of Christ and their families as they grow with them. We pray for our children. The most recent attack from the evil one is upon them. For those who have, we, <clears throat> excuse me, Lord, for those you have entrusted to care for them, their parents, those faithfully, diligently working with them, some in our Awana program, some in our VBS, some in Bible Blast. We just ask your special blessing upon each one that cares for those children. For Deb, for her team, helping them grow in faith, coming to know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, you are Almighty God, and everything comes from you. We pray for Deb and her mom, Barb, for her granddaughter, and the many trials. Continue to give them the strength that only comes from knowing you. We pray for our sister, Judy, who I see is here today, Lord. We just pray that you give the doctors wisdom as they search for what caused uh, this heart problem. We pray for Lauren and her baby, asking that you, your will will be accomplished in both their lives and their family during this difficult time. Lord, we love our missionaries. We love them so much. We bring Dan and Angie, Faith and Michaela before you as they continue their ministry in the Uganda. We also pray for their daughter, Karis, while she is stateside in college. Lord, we have a long list of cancer, health needs, and you know their needs even more than we. We ask that may your will be accomplished in each one. We pray for our sister Cassie as she will undergo surgery this week. Um, give the doctors wisdom and even a simple thing like anesthesia can uh, give us problems as I personally have found out Lord there is one special person today that we must not forget Janie she does so much here behind the scenes and takes so much so care of this, the people here in the building we thank you so much for her we ask a special blessing upon her today and look forward to how you will continue to work in her life 
give her the joy that she gives each of us. Lord, we pray for cheerful givers. We want to give back just a small blessing of how you have blessed us. We pray for all these things in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Isn't it great to know we have a God who's already won the fight, won the battle? Amen. Will you please stand and join us in worship this morning, praising our God of angel armies. Who can we fear when we have that God on our side? Amen. Amen. Let's continue in worship.
Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of
hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built. Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone.
faultless to stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the Thank you for praising this morning. Please be seated. Well, let me add my welcome to each and every one of you here today that are in the worship center and uh, those of you who are joining us via our live stream, we're just so glad that each and every one of you are here. Boys and girls, you are dismissed for Bible Blast. And uh, those of you who are in the worship center and those uh, watching our live stream, I can encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and meet me in the New Testament book of Jude. Some of you might be scratching your head and saying, uh, where's Jude? Well, just go back. T- you could say, hey, Jude. Um, but we're not going to do that. Uh, you can just go to the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, and go to your left, just a page. Just a page. While you're finding Jude, I just want to mention a couple of things. It's a great day. It's a great, great day. It's a beautiful day. I woke up. That's good. I was actually breathing. That's good. And uh, it's just gorgeous outside driving in this morning. We just praise God for such a beautiful day. Adriel's back on the piano bench. And uh, Adriel, we've been praying for you and the children having just an awesome time away, time of refreshing and encouragement and just recharging your batteries and thawing out a little bit. But you're back in the frozen tundra now. And uh, we just want you to know how much we miss you and we love it that you're here. Thank you for leading us so, so well this morning in worship. What a great worship time to everybody. Wonderful. Um, I just want to say quickly thank you to all of the different individuals who made our uh, M2M conference this weekend uh, come together and be such a success. Uh, I want to thank uh, the gals in the office, Darlene and Ashley. They'll pay me back later. But... Uh, just the event could not have happened without their support and their help. And I uh, just want to thank you both so much for all that you've done behind the scenes. I've got myself into a predicament now. Uh, We have so many that have helped. The gals who took care of the food this weekend, Janie and Diane and Natalia. Oh, my word. None of us went away hungry, I can tell you that. Fabulous food. I don't need to eat for a week. I will, but I, I don't need to. And then um, I want to give a special thank you to our tech crew that helped uh, with us. Uh, Dwayne and AJ were here Friday night and, and yesterday all day and did such a great job supporting all of the different aspects of the, the sessions. I want to thank Cameron and Connor and Brian for leading us in worship. They did such a beautiful job leading us. Is excellent, and I just appreciate how they tied all the music into our different sessions so well, and 
It was just a powerful experience. I'm grateful to all the men who came. Uh, I'm especially grateful to Pastor David and Pastor Dan for their partnership in ministry as elders of this church. And um, we experienced in preparing and getting ready for this conference what we uh, talked about and taught and learned. And it was just a really cool thing to see it all come together. And I'd like to ask all of you to be in prayer for the men who were here. Many of them made commitments to Christ in different ways while they were here. And just ask that they would be drive a stake in the ground and that they would be able to be firm decisions. And the things that they're going to grow in and mature in will really happen. That's just an awesome experience we had. So thank you to everybody. I'm probably forgetting somebody, but I don't mean to do that. But thanks to everybody for the wonderful conference. Pastor Dan, as a follow-up to our conference is inviting not only the men who were at the conference, but any men of our church to join him for a study of a book by David DeWitt. It's called The Mature Man, and it goes into a lot of practical detail what we learned this week theologically and applicationally still, but it just goes into a lot of practical details about what it means to be a mature man, of moving from being a child to a young man to a full-fledged adult and then growing into your role as the patriarch of your family, what that looks like as a husband, as a dad, your, your implications for you in the workplace and in church and all around. It's just an excellent study. If you're interested in that, guys, Pastor Dan, raise your hand and wave for us over here. You can see him, and he actually has already prepared for you some study guide material you can get your hands on as well as we'll be able to get a hard copy books. So we want to wait till we know how many guys are interested. And if you're interested in getting involved in that, please see him. And he's willing to meet with you either individually or, or as a group. So again, just thank you, Lord, for what a wonderful weekend we had. As you have your uh, book, uh, your Bible ready to the book of Jude, um, I'm going to read the entire letter. Now, some of you are going to get a little nervous, but if you just look at it, it's just, you know, one, one page. And uh, it's not the shortest book in the New Testament, but it's one of the shortest books. And I want to read it today. We're going to be in this book for five weeks. And as we go through it, I want you to experience the letter as Jude intended for his readers to experience it. All right? So here we go. This is God's word to us today out of the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called loved, called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth, they are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, 
defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet, when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand, and what they do not understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have, done the, they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts, as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackest blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers. Living according to their desires, their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having a spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. So, dear Father, today, as we come to your word, we ask for you to uh, give us eyes to see the truth of your word, ears to hear, and hearts and minds and spirits that are ready, ready to walk and live in obedience to the truths of your word. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come to the book of Jude, uh, Jude doesn't uh, hold back. He really comes at us uh, full bore and it instructs us about some very important, important lessons that were not only critical in the first century church, but are just as critical even today. So we ask you to be with us now as we turn our attention to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
According to the Associated Press, on the evening of February 6, 1996, three friends drove the rural roads east of Tampa, Florida with the intent of playing pranks. Tragically, their game was anything but funny. They pulled some 20 street signs out of the ground, including a stop sign at one fateful intersection. The next day, after the evening of their misadventure, three other 18-year-old buddies who had just finished bowling breezed through that intersection without stopping. Their car sailed into the path of an eight-ton truck, and they were all tragically killed. One year later, the three perpetrators of that deadly prank were convicted of manslaughter. In June of 1997, they stood in their orange jail jumpsuits and handcuffs and leg irons before a judge in a Tampa courtroom, weeping and wiping their eyes as they were sentenced each to 15 years in prison. It is a dangerous thing with uh, tragic consequences for anyone to take down signposts on a highway. It is no less dangerous for anyone to vandalize the signposts and truths God put up on the highway of life. When we stand up and honor God's truth, commandments, and principles, we point the way to the signposts of life. When people dishonor and disregard God's truth, they will either wittingly or unwittingly lead others to destruction. Those who love God and are devoted to him and his word will sound an alarm and fight to keep others from such devastation and destruction. Such was the situation facing Jude as he wrote his concise but potent letter. His readers were dealing with a group of heretical troublemakers who were ripping up God's signposts of truth just as fast as Jude and the other church leaders could put them up. So critical was the situation that Jude writes this letter with, uh, with a tone and urgency of a military call to arms. He informs his readers that a spiritual war is raging and it is time, it is time for all true believers to get into the fight. And that really is the big idea of the message today. Get into the battle. Big idea. Get into the battle. And I hope that you're listening to me because I'm, I'm a talking to you. You saw what Jude wrote there in verse 3. He said, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. He's not writing to a group of seminary students or a collection of pastors in their associational meeting. He's writing to people just like you and just like me, average Christian people, saying, it's time. It's time to get into the battle. That's the imperative before us in this letter. But before we dig into the meat of the text, let's get a bit of background so that we can fully understand and appreciate what Jude is writing. As we're going to see in a few moments, the letter is apparently a rather general correspondence to Christians in the mid to late first century. 
The epistle of Jude warns uh, against the uh, incipient heresy of Gnosticism. Stick with me here a little bit. We're going to be in class for a minute. I'll give you some background here. Gnosticism. At least it was an early iteration of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a philosophy that distinguished sharply between matter as being inherently evil and that which was spirit as being inherently good. Uh, Such a system of thought, if you let your mind dwell on this for a second, this system of thought had serious implications for Christian life and for Christian doctrine. Now, I know some of us, you know, we hear the word doctrine, we hear the teaching, we kind of like, you know, start to zone out, but I want to ask you to stick with me as you realize what's at stake to the readers of Jude's letter and to us. For example, Gnosticism challenged the biblical doctrine of creation. Sound familiar? Uh, Gnosticism gave rise to the idea, and this idea that uh, all matter was evil, gave rise to the idea that Christ's body, uh, if he had one, was really just an apparition. It wasn't real. Uh, You see, if Christ had a real body, they suppose, it would have had to have been evil, according to their faulty way of thinking. You can see the implications of that for Jesus Christ and his whole life and ministry, especially on the cross. It's There's an effect on Christian ethics and Christian living that this point of view has as well. Gnosticism prompted two very different results, actually. On the one hand, there was a group of Gnostics. Uh, Some of their number promoted what we would call antinomianism. It's the belief that a person is not under obligation to obey the moral law. See any conflict with Christianity there? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, On the other hand, some Gnostics promoted a form of abuse of the body to promote and encourage spirituality. If they could punish their bodies, their physical body, they thought that somehow they would be able to generate spiritual awareness and spiritual focus. Now, both of these notions uh, yank out the signposts of Scripture. These Gnostic teachings are directly in contradiction with the clear instruction from God's word, the Bible. Now it appears that there were some of Jude's readers who were victims of Gnostic instruction and were guilty in varying degrees of rebellion against true authorities, especially spiritual authority. Uh, they They had a spirit of irreverence, a presumptuous speech, and what we would call a lawless or libertine spirit, throwing off all restraint, especially morally speaking. Jude's tone is polemic, and as he rebukes and denounces false teachers who deceive unstable believers, he notices that they attempt to corrupt Christian worship, they insult Christian dignity, they attack Christian ethics, And if you notice, as we read through, they even desecrate the Lord's Supper. Most students of the New Testament have recognized a close similarity between the book of Jude and 2 Timothy. The writing does closely parallel uh, a lot of Peter's second letter. Most conservative Christian scholars believe that Peter's letter came first, that it predated the writing of the book of Jude. 2 Peter 
anticipates the coming of false teachers, as you can read in 2 Peter 2 and 3, while the book of Jude deals with their arrival on the scene. It is also significant to note that Jude quotes directly from 2 Peter 3, 3, and acknowledges the apostolic origin of that text. So there are some details that we don't know about the circumstances of Jude's writing and the people that he's writing to. He doesn't particularly identify like a local church like Paul would do in many of his letters. But understanding the relationship that Jude has to 2 Timothy and some of the historical context of the things that he's referring to, um, can't set a precise date for the writing, but a good understanding of these things helps us kind of date the letter somewhere in the 70s or 80s AD. So a little bit toward the mid and late part of the first century, obviously. So as we explore this letter over the course of the next uh, several weeks, we're going to discover that it is as relevant today as it was in the first century. The modern church of Jesus Christ is facing an onslaught of false doctrine that is causing many people to run through the intersections of life while ignoring the clear signposts and instructions of God's word. Now, uh, just to give you an overview of the whole book, we're just going to be looking at the first four verses here this morning, but uh, here's kind of a rough outline. Obviously, my outline isn't inspired. It's just, you know, a way to break down the letter. You can see that the first four verses are kind of like an introduction and a purpose statement for what Jude is writing about. And then when you get to verses 5 to 16, you see that Jude does not pull any punches and he identifies these false teachers. He goes right after them. He doesn't mess around at all. And we're going to actually take two weeks to look at those verses, verses 5 to 16. And then from verses 17 to 23, he gives the believers some ideas of how they can protect themselves against this onslaught of false teaching. And you probably noticed when we got to verse 17, the whole tone of the letter shifts dramatically. It changes dramatically. And then the last two verses are a beautiful benediction statement. We'll include those in our study of verses 17 to 23. We'll end that with two weeks of study as well. Now let's, just start, let's get started this morning. We only have time to look at verses 1 to 4, uh, Jude's introduction and purpose. Here's the first thing I'd like you to notice. We encounter a bold leader, Jude, a bold leader. Unlike our modern method of signing our correspondence at the end, Jude follows the custom of first century writing by identifying himself right at the beginning of his letter. His name, Jude, as we have it here in our Bibles, is an English transliteration of the common Jewish name Judas. Uh, English translators use this traditional name uh, in an effort to clearly distinguish our man Jude from the traitor Judas Iscariot. In fact, <clears throat> excuse me, within first century Christianity, that was very common for guys who were known as Judas to Christian guys to kind of shift their name to be Jude because like we didn't want to be connected to that guy. You can obviously understand why. Notice at first Jude describes himself as the servant. Look at Jude the servant. <clears throat> excuse me. You see that uh, right off Jude describes himself this way. Servant, the Greek word here, is actually the word slave. I encourage you to write that in the margin of your Bible, if not in your notes. It's the Greek word doulos, and it means just that. It means a slave. 
one who is in a permanent relation, a relationship of servitude to somebody else. His will being altogether consumed by the will of the other. So in other words, he doesn't get to set his alarm clock when he wants to. He doesn't get to write out a prioritized task list for the day. He does not get to you know, work on a family vacation. He's probably not working on retirement plans because everything about his life, everything, is under the authority of another person. What that person wills is what his will becomes. You understand that, what the doulos is. It is generally used of one serving, like I say, bound uh, to serve, bound in service to another. Uh, some slaves, some doulos, were bound in servitude involuntarily, uh, while others did so willingly out of devotion and service to their master. And when Jude and Paul and other New Testament writers refer to themselves this way, they're in that category of voluntary servitude. So somebody could become a doula. Somebody could become a slave of another person by their own choice. And uh, they would be, it would become a legal arrangement, a binding arrangement that could not be revoked. And this is the term that uh, Jude uses to identify himself with. Uh, I wish that uh, our English translations had carried the word slave over into our English Bibles. I know that our English-speaking sensibilities don't like the word slave. But uh, I think the word servant is, softens up the, the intent of what Jude is writing. So Jude tells us he is the servant of Jesus Christ. This is his principal relationship. This is his principal credential in writing, if you will. Jude humbly designates himself as Christ's servant, Christ's slave. Notice Jude the brother. Jude the brother. Here in verse 1, Jude identifies himself as the brother of James. And that's helpful to his readers because they know who James is. That's also helpful to us in what it says and what it doesn't say. Uh, James, the James that is mentioned here is the James who wrote the New Testament book of James. So if you go just a little bit to the left of the book of Jude, you're going to run into the book of James. And that is the fellow that he is brothers with, James. And since James and Jude are brothers, interestingly enough, that makes both of them the half-brother. It makes both of them half-brothers with Jesus. For example, over in Matthew 13, 55, we read, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And then Mark 6.3 shares that same report, same account. And yeah, the answer is yeah, yeah, these guys are his brother, you bet. And so the crowd was offended that Jesus, you know, was coming off like something special when, I mean, we know these guys, you know, James, Joseph, Simon, Jesus, they're just guys just like us. Who did Jesus think he is? Well, this, these guys are, are Jesus' brother. And now we say James and Jude are the half-brothers of Jesus because although they shared the same mother, Mary, Jesus obviously had a different father. He had the heavenly father, and they did not. Joseph was their father. So why do you suppose that Jude didn't just simply come around and say, yo, I am uh, Jesus' brother? You know, if I was Jesus' brother, I'd be pretty proud of that. To be honest with you, I think it'd be pretty cool. I'm Jesus' brother. But he didn't do that. He did not do that. Why didn't he mention his family tie to Jesus? I think probably because of his humility and his modesty and his reverence for the Lord Jesus, as you're going to see. 
His reverence restrained him, I think, from boasting about that relationship. And he was more, more than a brother of Jesus. He was a disciple and a servant. And we know from Jesus' point of view, that relationship is stronger than any blood tie. Back in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 to 21, there's an interesting uh, account. Uh, Jesus is doing his ministry, and his family is worried about him. He's, you know, burning a candle at both ends, so to speak. Uh, he's not eating the way that they think that he should eat. He's not getting the rest that they think that he should uh, get. Uh, they honestly, as you read the different accounts in the Gospels, think that maybe he's just, you know, slipped it a little bit and maybe not, you know, working with a full deck. And so uh, they come and they kind of come to the place where Jesus is ministering and they can't get into the house where he's speaking because there's such a big crowd. And so they, they send word in, you know, a little piece of paper, send it in with Jesus, we're mom and the kids, and we you please just tell him we're here. So this is Jesus' response. His mothers and brothers came to him, but they could not meet him uh, with him because of the crowd. And so he was told, your mother and your brothers, James, Jude, and the others, are standing outside. They want to see you. But he replied to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. Now at the time that Jesus said that, I don't think Jude probably appreciated that. But as we can see, he later he did come to appreciate that. And I believe that is the driving force of why he just stick, stays away from the, yo, I'm Jesus' brother. You know what? So there are several other references to Jude in the New Testament. It was after the resurrection that Jude came to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. It was his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, that turned many of Jesus', Jesus family from skeptics and doubters into believers and disciples. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul is speaking of Jude's brother James and his initial interaction with the resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he says, he appeared to James and then later to all the apostles. I think it's pretty remarkable that Jesus took the time and the effort to especially reveal his resurrected self to his family. He didn't say, yeah, take that. That's the way you want it, that's the way you got it, and leave them off to the side. No, he made an effort to go and make sure they knew he was back from the dead. The book of Acts informs us that Jesus' brothers were part of the praying group that was waiting for the Holy Spirit leading up to a Pentecost. Jude would have undoubtedly been part of that family group, Acts 1.14. They all were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. A significant number of Jesus' family members were known among the early church. Again, Jude among them. They apparently had an itinerant role in traveling to the early church fellowships as witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Paul is trying to give a defense for the need and the right that he has for financial support in his ministry of preaching 
and evangelizing and starting and building churches. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers, and Cephas? So apparently, these brothers of Jesus and their wives would travel together to visit the church fellowships, and the church fellowships would pay the expenses of their travel. That's the point that Paul's addressing. So what is the shifted Judas, excuse me, Jude, from being, you know, the brother's nuts, to he's my Lord. It's the resurrection. The resurrection. So there we have Jude, Jude the servant, Jude the brother, and then notice uh, Jude the warrior. Jude the warrior. Although Jude writes a brief letter, right? Just read that in a couple minutes together. Really packs a big wallop. Jude's writing style is very bold and crisp. He doesn't mince words and he cuts right to the heart of the matter. You don't have to say, no, come on, Jude, really, tell us what do you really think. No, no. Jude uses a number of Greek words as he writes. Remember, he's writing in Greek. Greek words that find their origin and meaning in the military life and practices of uh, the Roman soldiers and military commanders of the Roman army. Jude does not apologize or shy away from the truth and the heresies that threaten the truth. He uh, has courage, courage to speak the truth and also confront the errors threatening the faith of believers then, there in the first century and now. His bold stance as a fighter for the faith is commendable and serves as an example to us. I should mention that even though Jude's words are often direct, he also demonstrates a spirit of grace and compassion for his Christian brothers and sisters, even some who have erred and are on the verge of leaving the faith. He seems to follow the example of the Lord Jesus in being a balanced mix between grace and truth. Not just one or the other, as many seem prone to do in our present day. You know what I mean. There are those who are, you know, they've got the truth, and man, they are coming after you with it and whacking everybody on the head with the truth. You know what I mean. Grace, not so much. Don't need a bunch of wimps in the church. We need some... Then you have those who are all grace. You know, oh, let's just be nice. Just be kind. Let's just stand together in a circle, hold hands and sing Kumbaya, please. And uh, that doctrine stuff, that's hard. It's tough. That's, we don't need that. People argue. And, no. You need a spirit of genuine grace. That's not really grace. And you need... Truth, and people who abuse people with the scripture or truth, that's not the right handling of truth either. You need a balance between truth and grace, grace and truth. Jude strikes that balance. Um, not, just, uh, not just that, I want you to think of Jude this way. He, you know, he's a, I guess he's going to put it this way. He's a gracious warrior. Okay? So let's move on. That's Jude. Now I want you to think about his special people. The people of God, the ones that he's writing to, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, those who are called, loved by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may 
Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Notice their unique identity. Uh, Since a specific church is not identified by Jude, it, it seems that his intent in writing is to reach a rather general audience. Uh, The church at large, you might put it that way. The many Old Testament references in his short letter suggest that Jude's audience was probably Jewish. His readers are identified uh, in the first of a series of Jude's trilogy statements. Did you notice that he likes to say things in threes as we went through? Uh, Jude identifies their unique identity based on the sovereignty of God, and the centrality of Jesus Christ. First, Jude writes to those who are called. Now, we don't have time to really explore all that, but let me just simply say this is a direct reference to what we call the doctrine of election. Jude uniquely identifies his readers as those who have have experienced God's irresistible elective call to salvation, a call that brings us into fellowship with Christ and his family, a call that guarantees us the blessings that we're going to explore in just a moment in verse 2, a call that endows us with all aspects of God's grace and more. Second, Jude writes, to those who are loved by God the Father, the benevolent mercy and grace of God are in view as Jude identifies these readers as the beneficiaries of God's great love. The plan of salvation that we were singing about this morning and its fulfillment come from God, who's not only the Father in the the sense of creation and the order of all that exists, there are a number of passages of the Bible that refer to God in that sense, but It's also, as James said in verse 25, God our Savior. God our Savior. The people of God are uniquely identified as objects of God's love. And third, Jude writes to those who are kept, kept for Jesus Christ. This phrase speaks of the preservation of the readers and points forward to the glorious return of of the Lord Jesus and the magnificent eternal inheritance that believers have in Christ that is all to the praise and glory of his name. God initiates our salvation, but he also preserves and keeps believers secure for eternal life. It's the power of Jesus Christ that sustains the believer here and now and all the way to glory. It's like the old gospel song, Amazing Grace says, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Wonderful, wonderful. Notice also about these special people, the people of God. Notice their favored status. And again, his typical style, Jude uh, prays a threefold blessing. He uses a benediction at the beginning and at the end of his letter. He has this threefold blessing here that he prays to overflow in his readers' lives. He says there in verse 2 May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy and peace. Mercy and peace. That was a very common Jewish 
greeting. Uh, but he adds this word love, mercy, uh, peace, and love. And this turns that greeting into a very Christian thing. It became a, a term and a way of greeting one another that was uniquely Christian. Mercy, of course, is the idea of showing somebody compassion, uh, who's suffering, for example, or uh, found guilty but in need of, of pardon. So the word is used throughout the New Testament of both God and people. Of course, God shows us mercy by staying what his justice demands. That is, that he doesn't give us what we deserve when it comes to our sinful status before him. Each and every one of us are guilty of violating his will, his word, and his character. That requires judgment and a consequence, but God doesn't slap that judgment on us. He holds it back. He's helping you buy some time through his mercy. That's what he's doing. And with respect to one another, mercy is a way that we reflect the character of God to one another, isn't it? When someone is either suffering we don't just say, you know, buck up, take a pill. No, we, we show them mercy. And when somebody has sinned against us or when they're caught in sin, again, we don't slap them over the head. We, we show mercy. We show mercy. We aren't to, you know, throw the book at them, but show mercy to others because God has shown mercy to us. Hebrews 4.16, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Jude prays a blessing of mercy over his readers. And today I have been praying that over you as you came to worship today. Peace. Peace obviously speaks of you know tranquility, quiet, rest. Can anybody use any of those right now? I've got to tell you, I'm a little tired this morning, okay? Could do a little peace. But uh, the word is also used to describe the idea of a cessation of hostility and the establishment of reconciliation between two previously uh, hostile entities. That's peace, the Bible, Bible way of talking about peace. The word is used again, both of God and to people in the New Testament, God, through his son Jesus Christ, has provided for us to know peace with him. Even though our sinful rebellion, as I mentioned a moment ago, against his word, against his will, and against his character, that has caused us to become, the Bible says, we are enemies at war with God because of that. But he offers us peace a way to solve that hostility problem, to remove the enmity and to make us friends of God, family with God, peace. With respect to one another, peace is provided to us as a gift from the Holy Spirit. You read about that in Ephesians 4.3. And we have the responsibility to live worthy of the family name. Paul says there in Ephesians 4. To live worthy of the family name in Christ Jesus by working hard to maintain peace with one another. Someone who is not maintaining peace with brothers and sisters in Christ is not in the Spirit. They're not. And they're not walking in the blessing of God. 
Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that the God of peace also helps us individually find peace within our own troubled minds, souls, and spirits? Anybody here going through a time where you're, you're just twisted and, and frustrated and hurt and confused and uh, today you think this way, tomorrow you think that way, and you think, Mike, how can the world can I be going on like this inside myself? The promise of God's word is that you can know peace. You can know peace. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude prays a blessing of peace over his readers, and uh, I've been praying that blessing over you today too. Love is, of course, ideally a strong feeling of affection uh, between those who are closely associated, typically, that's how the word is used, but not only. Uh, this benevolent, affectionate goodwill is also extended to others who might be outside our network of friends and family and close associates. And once again, we are not surprised to discover that the New Testament uses this word about God and people too. With respect to God, this love, this term love, it's the word agape. You've heard us talk about that before. It's a very particular kind of love. It's God's willful direction toward humanity. You could say, since the Bible says God is love, he's other things too, but God, the Bible says God is love, God cannot help but extend himself to you in love. He, he has to. It's the way he is. It's who he is. Uh, so with respect to God, it's his willful direction toward you and toward me. And then notice that Jude has already identified his readers as recipients of God's love, hasn't he? Jude has done that. And the love involves, this love that he's talking about involves God doing what he knows is best for people and not necessarily what they desire. I want you to think about that for a second. God knows what's best for you. And he knew it was in your best interest that he would send, in his love, he would send his one and only son to go to the cross for you. Think of all of the people that you may know that have no clue about that. And if you shared that with some people, they go, yeah, fine, never mind, I don't really care. God loves them anyway. God loves them anyway. And with respect to one another, we're called to demonstrate this kind of self-sacrificial love to each other and to those that are outside the household of faith. Romans 5, 5, the end of that verse says, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The idea is that God's love has been poured out into us so that it can flow out from us and through us to other people. Jude prays a blessing of love over his readers. And I've been praying that blessing over you today too. Jude prays for this threefold blessing of mercy, peace, and love to be realized in and through his readers in abundance. What a marvelous thing it would be if these wonderful qualities were truly and profusely present in every regenerated individual. What would the church be like? What would the world be like? Well, uh, that's Jude's special people, people of God. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me where you're going to find the critical challenge that he has for us here. 
the critical challenge to stay on mission. There's two parts to this in verse 4. The first part is to defend the faith, as he says there in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. Notice this phrase, dear friends. You might want to mark it there, and then again at verse 17, and again at verse 20. This is a term that Jude uses to address his readers. They're dear, uh, dearly loved ones, literally is what it means. He wants them to know of his affection for them in Christ. Now see the challenge. He says, although I was eager to write about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Jude initially planned to write to his recipients about the great doctrines related uh, to salvation. You know, things like redemption, uh, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, all those wonderful things, probably other things as well. But instead, he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to write a call to battle for the truth in light of the arrival of these apostate false teachers. I've got to tell you something, I can identify with Jude at this point. I would much rather, much rather talk about our great salvation. These things that I just mentioned, like, you know, the beauty and the wonder of justification and sanctification, glory, all, all of that. That is just, just so wonderful to talk about. That. To talk about false teachers, false doctrine, the doom that they have and all that stuff, that's kind of heavy duty, you know, yike. So I would much rather, like Jude said, I would rather have done that, but the Holy Spirit got heavy duty on him and said, no, this is what you need to address. And he says, I want you to contend for the faith, to fight for something. It's one of those military words. It's, a, it's the idea of being in a military conflict. It's also used of the effort and energy of a wrestler as he's grappling with an opponent. From the root of this complex Greek word, epagonizomai, I love that word, it's just a fun word to say, <laughs> we get our word agonize. That's the idea. To, to, to wrestle and to, to be in, uh, not contentious, that's another subject for another time, but to contend and fight, agonize for the sake of the faith. By this reference, Jude is not suggesting that the salvation of those to whom he is right is in jeopardy somehow. That's not the implication of what he's saying. Rather, the false teachers uh, preaching and living out a counterfeit gospel were misleading those who needed to hear the true gospel. Jude wrote this urgent, vitally important message for Christians to wage war against all forms of false teaching, to fight strenuously for the truth, like a soldier who has been entrusted with a sacred task of guarding a, a holy treasure. The Apostle Paul shared a very similar mandate with his pastoral protege, Timothy. The verses that uh, Tom read at the beginning of the service uh, are an example of that. Another place Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12, he said, fight the good fight of faith. Notice he didn't just say fight. <laughs> fight the good fight 
of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. At the end of Paul's life, some of the very last words that we have written by the Apostle Paul, he knows his execution is coming. I believe it was probably just a matter of days after he finished writing 2 Timothy that he was beheaded in Rome. In 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. When Jude and Paul speak to us of the faith, this is a reference to the whole body of revealed salvation truth that's contained in Scripture. That's what they're talking about. This is a call to obviously know sound doctrine. I have to ask you, do you really know sound doctrine? Do you know teaching of God's Word? Do you even have an idea what Jude and Paul are talking about? Uh, It's a call to be discerning in sorting out truth from error and to be willing to confront and to attack error. Philippians 1.27. Again, the Apostle Paul says, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent... I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Notice that Jude states that the faith was delivered to saints once and for all. I need to mention this. Once for all gives the idea of it being completed and being whole. The faith. Again, what's revealed, salvation, truth, contained in Scripture, has been handed down to the church in total by the apostles' teaching. It is not a work in progress. It is not ever-growing and ever-expanding. No. Jude implies that there was a body of truth that had been communicated from the apostles. Jesus had promised the apostles that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things and guide them into all truth when he met with them in the upper room. John 14, 26, the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. John 16, later that evening, Jesus went on to say, John 16, 12, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will deliver it to you. So even in the early days of the first century church, there was a recognized content that was the accepted belief Doctrine, teaching of the church. Like the believers, Jude is challenging in the early days of the church, so it is today that we must defend the faith. We, we stay on mission when we defend the faith. We also stay on mission 
when we stand firm against false doctrine. You see what he says there in verse 4. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly. Did you notice that's one of his favorite words? They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying that Jesus Christ, uh, denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. Jude brings four charges against the infiltrators among the ranks of the believers. These were false teachers pretending to be true, who on the surface look like the real thing, but whose intentions were to lead God's people astray. They were running around and popping up all the signposts they could get their hands on. Charge number one. James, uh, Jude rather says, they are designated for judgment. It's actually a legal term uh, in the Greek. It's a compound word uh, compri- comprised of two parts. One part meaning to do something openly, to do it plainly, in plain view. And the other part meaning uh, to write. So it is the idea of writing something out in plain view of everyone. That's what this word means. They were designated. So it means uh, to outlaw a person, to appoint them for judgment, to ordain them for judgment, and then to post that up publicly in writing. Those who were summoned before courts in Roman law, the courts of justice, were said uh, to be, uh, there's a term that the Greeks use, I won't try to read it, it's like a whole line long, but the idea is that they were the ones who were posted about, it's a technical legal term, and it means they were cited by posting up their names in a public place. And if you've ever been to court, even in our own city and county courts and so forth, even in our day, the cases to be heard by the judge are written beforehand and put up on a public place in the courthouse. The only difference is in the Roman system, the judgment was posted. So Jude is declaring that the judgment was published or declared in writing ahead of time regarding these false teachers. And these individuals whose names were being posted uh, in public uh, place were outlawed. That's the idea. As persons, they were doomed to die. They had a reward on their head to whoever could kill them and bring them in. That's the technical use of this word. Jude's not suggesting we go out and get heretics and shoot them. Or That's not what he's saying. So Jude, in verse 4, suggested those who not only must give an account to God for their crimes and are liable to God's judgment, they're also destined to the punishment they deserve. And the idea is that there should be a public recognition of that. God has given notice well beforehand of these false teachers and a certain judgment that they're going to face. Here's charge number two. It says that they have come in by stealth. This means that they entered, you know, craftily, they secretly, sneakily, without notice, like a thief. Jude is telling us that the false teachers entered into the church fellowship under false claims and false pretenses. They claimed to be something that they were not. They claimed to be Christians. They were not. They claimed to follow Jesus. They did not. They claimed to be genuine believers when, in fact, they were not believers 
at all. Charge number three, as I mentioned, he likes that word, ungodly. We'll get to that again later in a few weeks, but they are ungodly. It's another compound word in Greek, and it literally means without worship or without veneration. Basically, the word means somebody who is godless. It does not mean simply somebody who's irreligious. You know, they don't just go to church or uh, they don't observe any religion. That's not the idea of the word. It doesn't mean that. It is actually one who actively practices the opposite of what the fear of God demands. The word is used to describe someone characterized by immoral and impious behavior. This is why Jude says that they are turning the grace of God into sensuality. Sensuality, that's the CSB's, that's the translation I'm reading. It's a way of accommodating a very stern word for English-speaking Americans. The meaning of the word goes way beyond the connotation of our word sensuality. It's brutal licentiousness. That's not a word you hear much anymore. It's the idea of sexual excess with the absence of any restraint marked by an insatiable desire for pleasure. These were the people infiltrating the church. Sound familiar? Jude's words here bring to mind Paul's very similar concern in Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bible, just flip back there just a second. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Paul says, what then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? He's explained that grace has been manifest to us even in our sin. So some have said, well, if grace comes to us because of sin, let's just keep sinning. More sin, more grace, right? He says, uh, should we sin because we're uh, not under the law but under grace? He says, absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over and having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness." I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as, offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a verse we hear a lot. Hearing it in its context is, puts a little bit of a different light on it, doesn't it? These infiltrators that Jude is concerned about were the focus of his concern. They viewed God's grace as an excuse for open sin. They indulged their flesh without guilt. 
And such an abuse of grace is untenable, according to Jude, and must be called out among the people of God. And then here's the fourth charge. They are denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Two words here that Jude uses. Apostate false teachers, they disowned Christ as sovereign Lord with supreme authority, and they disdain any recognition of Christ as honorable master by their wicked behavior. It's always true. It's always true of false teachers, of cults, and of false religions, that they pervert the truth of Scripture and the clear teachings about who Jesus Christ is. They will either deny the deity of Jesus Christ, or they will deny the humanity of Jesus Christ, and they will not accept the God-man, Jesus Christ, and what that implies. So very early on among the Gnostics, the train of thought was that Jesus didn't really possess an actual physical, physical body, so he was just a phantom figure. And later, um, the, those false teachers said uh, that even if Jesus did have a physical body, that must have been evil and wicked, like I mentioned earlier. They denied Jesus was God. They denied that Jesus had authority. So denying Jesus in this way means that they're actively disbelieving what Christ testified about himself. Here's the big idea of the message again. Get into the battle. The battle that Jude is describing that was waging around him in the first century church is still upon us. I was recently reading about how some years ago now, the fighting Irish of uh, Notre Dame were playing uh, on their own home court and had the good fortune to whip the Bruins of uh, UCLA. Back in that contest, Digger Phelps was the coach of uh, Notre Dame, that team, and he said, the victory is sweet, but unfortunately in a short period of time we will have to go to the, uh, oh, what was it called, the Pauley Pavilion, I think is what it's called, and battle them on their own court. And everybody in California shouted, amen. <laughs> and sure enough, very short order, every sports fan in the area watched UCLA on their home court soundly defeat the fighting Irish. You may win the battle, but there always is another one to fight on another day. And so, dear ones, as we continue to fight the good fight of the faith until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ returns, let's be sure that we get into the battle. Let's pray. So, dear Father, today we ask for you to help us uh, hear the stern warning of Jude and also find the great encouragement that he has for us here and know that someday, someday the whole battle will be over, the whole war will be over. We'll experience wonderful victory. We can't wait, but we affirm our trust, our faith in you, and we will live as your servants, your faithful ones, warriors for the faith, and we will experience victory, your victory, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray and praise. Let's stand. Amen.
Worship team, you're hot today. You guys are doing great. Thank you. 
Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. God's people said? Amen. Awesome. Have a great day. Walk with the King. Be a blessing.